Uh, good morning. One of the things God's people around the world is saying, God is good all the time. And, and, we, and we want to testify to that. So we're going to practice that. I'm going to say God is good. You're going to say all the time. And then when I say all the time, you say God is good. That's easy. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. I've added another line to that global statement. God is not only good, but God is great. If he's not great, he's not good enough. So we need to keep that truth as well. So I'm going to say, God is great all the time. All the time. We're going to say two, uh, two, both those lines. God is good all the time. God is great all the time. We need to remember that not just on Sunday, but right through the week, right through the months, right through the years. That God is both good and great. Amen? Yeah. I bring you greetings from uh, two individuals who were on the pastoral staff. Most recently was a uh, uh, pastor at Mangum. I, I saw him about a month ago in central Florida where he is serving as the music pastor uh, of the congregation. Uh, the other is Pastor Rod Filomino, who was here for several years. Uh, he pastors the Filipino Alliance Church uh, in the great city of Toronto. I bring greetings from both, both of them to you. I, I, I must say, I, I came to Christ as, uh, as a high school student in the country of Malaysia. Came to Christ reading the scriptures. And the scriptures have been precious to me since. And this morning we are going to look into God's word. And I trust that uh, the familiarity of some of the passages will not his name. Amen. In the last six, 35 years, there's been tremendous historical and archaeological research in one patriarch of the Bible. And that patriarch is Abraham. There's been interest in Abraham in the last 35 years, renewed interest, because Abraham is considered a major figure of three major religions. Three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, consider Abraham one of the important patriarchs. That's why a few years ago, Time magazine had a cover story, a research story on this individual. Who is this person, Abraham? Why has three major religions claim him as part of, uh, of their heritage. Friends, God also con considers Abraham very important. Why? Because uh, 12 out of 50 chapters of the first book of the Bible talks about this one individual. Why? Because Hebrews 11, which is called the chapter of the Hall of Faith, uh, 12 out of 30 verses focuses on, on one person called Abraham. Friends, it's simple. If God considers Abraham important, we need to consider also Abraham also important. Abraham is called the father of the faith. Uh, we, need to be... uh, uh, we need to take Abraham seriously. We, we need to look at why God makes this person very central uh, in Scripture. When we think of Abraham, the normal tendency is to think of him as a spiritual giant. And rightly so. 
He was a spiritual giant. But friends, this morning we need to know he did not start as a, as a spiritual giant. He started as a spiritual baby, a spiritual dwarf. And God had to put him in the school of faith. He had to put him, enroll him in the school of faith. He had to learn what it is to become the father of the, uh, uh, the, father of the faithful. Abraham took many faltering steps. Abraham took many tangential uh, avenues. He went off the main road, but God superintended. This morning, friends, I want you to know, spiritual maturity is not instant. You cannot get spiritual maturity because you went, went to a big conference or you read a book. Or it's not instant. It is gradual. Friends, God is inviting us to enroll in the school of faith. When, he came to, when we came to Christ, he enrolled us in the school of faith. He wants us to remain in the school of faith. He wants to superintend because spiritual growth is a process. Spiritual growth is a process, and he wants your cooperation. Friends, this morning, God is not just interested in one or two spiritual giants. God's interest is that every believer would be a spiritual giant. Not just one or two. Not just Elijah and Abraham and John and Paul. He wants every one of us. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, God wants you to be a spiritual giant. I want you to say that. Just turn around and tell somebody, God wants you to be a spiritual giant. Because many of us put it off to some other person, some other time, and I want you to know God's plan is that every believer, every believer would become a spiritual giant for God. Amen? Amen. Every believer. Let's look at Abraham. Uh, uh, let's look at Abraham. Who was Abraham? Now, I surprised many Christians when I say Abraham was not a Jew. He never was a Jew. Abraham was a Mesopotamian. And according to Joshua 24, we learned that Abraham came from a family who worshipped idols. Abraham was surrounded by spiritual pitch black darkness. No one in his community knew the living God. No one down the street could have recommended Jehovah God. So you need to know, Abraham came from spiritual darkness. Worshipping idols. Did not know there was a living God. And there are thousands and millions of people who are still in that faith. But when God spoke... Abraham responded. When God spoke, God came. Friends, right from the beginning, the gospel is the gospel of grace. Because God initiated. God initiated. God came to Abraham. Abraham was not seeking God. Uh, God uh, initiated, came seeking after, uh, after Abraham. The gospel is the gospel of grace. So one... The aspect of grace is this. God not only initiated, but the other aspect of grace, God gives us the capacity to respond. So grace is not just God initiating. 
Yes, God initiates, but if he doesn't give us the capacity to respond, that grace will never be personalized. And this morning, friends, you need to know, you and I, who have become followers of Jesus Christ, children in God's family, we responded to God's grace just like Abraham did. And he gave us the capacity to trust him. And we became a child of God. And so Abraham responded to God. And so we're going to look at the three passages. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we see God, uh, God's promise to Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham has both a, uh, both a commandment and a commission. That's a commandment and a commission. And God commands Abraham to leave his past and gives him a mission for the future. It's in the form of a perfect promise. In verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12, you can see a sevenfold promise unveiled. It's a perfect package. Whenever you see the word seven in scripture, you see something of a perfection. This is a perfect package that God promises Abraham. Number one, he promises the gift of unknown land. Verse one, to the land which I will show you. What was God telling Abraham? Leave your heritage land. I know you have land. Leave your heritage land. I will give you divinely approved land. Give up your rightful heritage land and I will give you designated land that I planned for you. The gift of unknown land. Secondly, the gift of descendants. In verse 2, uh, uh, it says, I'll make you a great nation. Remember this time, Abraham and Sarah did not have children. But God says to him, I will make you a great nation. Keep in mind, there's no point having land if you do not have children. He promises land because Abraham is going to have children. Abraham is going to have a family. God promises Abraham future generations of descendants that's going to come from his seed. Thirdly, the gift of personal blessing. In verse 2 it says, I will bless you. Friends, it is focused. This blessing is very personal. Abraham, I will bless the individual you. Abraham is going to, will experience the personal blessing of God. Fourthly, the gift of fame and distinction. He says in verse 2, I'll make your name great without any selfish ambition. On Abraham's part, God is going to make Abraham famous. The fact we are talking about him this morning, that means God has fulfilled his promise. He has, that's proof that he fulfilled his promise. Fifthly, the gift of opportunity of service. In verse 2 it says, you shall be a blessing. God will bless Abraham, but he's not going to stop there. And Abraham, in turn, will be a blessing to others. Uh, sixthly, the gift of present protection. Uh, in the first part of verse 3 it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. With this promise, no one could harm Abraham. 
God is going to be with Abraham, going to be Abraham's shield and refuge. God will provide his personal protection all through Abraham's pilgrimage in the school of faith. Seventhly, the gift of universal blessing, spiritual blessing to all people groups are going to come through Abraham's seed. We are here, we are here this morning worshiping the living Christ, celebrating his death and resurrection. It's simply because that blessing that was given to Abraham has come through Abraham to us. He had us in mind when he gave this promise to him. I'll make you a blessing. And it will be to all people groups. Everywhere. Everywhere. Islands and cities. Villages and towns. Rural and urban. Doesn't matter wherever people are. The spiritual blessing of Abraham will get there. So God commanded Abraham to leave what was familiar, he was familiar with. To leave everyone and everything. And leave the past behind you for a God-ordained future. But what did Abraham do? Abraham obeyed partially. He left his country. He left his relatives. He did not leave his father's house. Why? He took his own father, Terah. And his nephew Lot with him. Friends, one key principle that Abraham has to learn to come to mature living faith is this. He has to learn what total obedience is. He has to learn what total obedience is. It's only when we totally obey is can we really say we are experiencing mature living faith. Now, total obedience is made up of two, uh, 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 two elements. Complete obedience and instant obedience. Total obedience is, is complete obedience plus instant obedience. When you put those two things together, it becomes the obedience that God is pleased with and what God is expecting. So it's not partial obedience. It's not postponed obedience. It's total obedience. It's complete obedience plus instant obedience. Friends, partial obedience delays the blessings of God. Partial obedience uh, uh, even robs us of the blessings of God. Now, uh, you know, the concept of blessing is a very rich concept in Scripture. And it's a word that's used almost in every service in one form. It's what I call a $64 million word without really understanding what it is. It's a, it's a blessing of God. Uh, so so uh, let me tell you about four things about the blessing of God. First of all, the blessing of God comes from an extremely generous God. The blessing of God comes to us from an extremely generous God. God is proactively positioned to bless us. Unfortunately, 
There are two extreme camps in the body of Christ. One camp uh, overdoes blessing. They go beyond the boundaries of scripture and expect blessing when God has not backed it up. That's the other group which is most of us. We talk about blessing but we don't expect it. We expect a blessing sometime in the future in heaven. And friends, there will be a lot of blessings there. But we are talking about blessing right here. Friends, I want to tell you, there are many, many Christians think that God is waiting for us to do something for him to bless us. There are many, many Christians who think uh, that God needs prodding. He needs to be manipulated. He is looking for a spiritual bride. Or a spiritual vow from us. Friends, that is not the God of Scripture. God is proactively positioned to bless us. I find most Christians do not have their bucket right side up. He's not going to waste his blessing. He's waiting for the bucket to be right side up so that he can pour... But our expectation is not there. Friends, I want to tell you simple. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. That's not what I'm preaching. We sometimes react to that. Now, that that is unbiblical. But I'm talking about blessing he wants us to have because because he loves us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to Uh, prosper. He wants us to excel. He wants us to become all that he has in store in Christ. My simple logical argument is this. If God has blessed you with the greatest blessing which is your personal salvation, why wouldn't he throw the rest in? Our God is a generous God and he wants to bless us. Secondly, Uh, The blessing of God comes in the context of relationship. And he blesses us to increase our intimacy with him. This is very careful. The blessing of God comes to us in the context of our relationship with him. And he wants to bless us to increase our intimacy with him. See, the, the blessing of God is not an aid, government aid program. The blessing of God is not a handout. It's not a welfare check. The blessing of God is something he wants to give to us, and in the process he wants us to recognize the hand that gives to us and the person he gives to us to get him to know more intimately. The more he blesses us, the more we should feel how awesome he is, how precious he is, how how almighty he is. He wants to know, he wants you to know him more intimately. Thirdly, friends, the blessing of God is not always material. Yes, there's some 
I think and all of us can testify of the material blessings we have received. But I'm telling many of us know there are many non-materialistic blessings, spiritual blessings, which are much, much more significant to us than all the things that we have collected and gathered in life. Fourthly, and finally, the blessing of God is always transformational. What do I mean by that? See, God's blessing is always positive, and God's blessing is always good for you and me. And whenever God's blessing, or when God's blessing comes to us, it brings about positive change inside out. It brings positive change inside out. So as simple as this, so whenever God blesses me, remember I said he was a generous God. When he blesses me, he does not just fill my cup. When he blesses me, there is overflow to those nearby me. So when God blesses me, my wife is touched. When my wife is blessed, I'm touched. When we are blessed, our children are touched. You know, that is just like God. Because you know why? He wants other people to notice you. Wow. Wow. They don't tell you, but inside they say, wow. You know, he, has, he really has made witnessing much more easier than we have made it to be. He wants you to be showcase item one, wherever you're working. He wants you to be the, the specimen and say, look at my rep. Here's my son. Here's my daughter. Here's my family. They belong to me. And he wants you, he blesses you so that it touches them and they notice. You see, when God blesses my family, it blesses some people in my church. When God blesses my family, my neighbors are blessed because God wants my neighbors to be touched. They may not get all the blessing, but they get wet with the blessing of God. When you get wet, you take notice. It doesn't matter whether you're sleeping, you still wake up. That's God's plan. It's not just for one individual. God's plan is he blesses us so that your spillover will make people notice who you are, that you're different because God is on your side. Friends, it's transformational. It's inside out. Transform me inside. Never outside in. It's always inside out. He changes me. He makes me more grateful. He makes me more worshipful. He makes me more joyful. He makes me want to bless others because I have received the blessing of God. The blessing of God is always transformational. You see, anybody who encountered God in Scripture, they all said in some way, wow. He wants to use us. He wants to bless us. So let's go to the second passage of scripture. First passage, God gives a promise to Abraham. Uh, to Abraham, uh, Now he, uh, God fulfills that promise. 
in Genesis 21, verses 1 to 3. Now, God fulfilled the promise of a son to Abraham after 25 years. Friends, 25 years is a long time. 25 years, you not only have a child, the child goes through school, is almost likely almost getting a job or in a job or even thinking or getting married. 25 years later, you can understand the impatience that Abraham and Sarah went through. But God had a plan. He waited 25 years when it was biologically impossible for them to have a child. Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90. And then God gives them Isaac because Isaac became a miracle child. Another opportunity to testify of the living God, that Abraham. Miracle child, biologically impossible. And, and Isaac was brought up with great joy, brought great joy to Abraham and Sarah and brought lots of laughter in their home. And uh, they must have been protective. You know, uh, Abraham and Sarah played two roles. At times they were mom and dad, at other times they were grandparents. And grandparents tend to be nicer than parents are to children. I don't know why. And uh, some of you, you wonder, how come my parents are much more tolerant and patient I used to get a whack. I'd get scolded if I had done that. Then the grandchildren come 43 years later and they're treated so nice. I think Abraham and Sarah, you know, loved this child. And Isaac grew, you know, uh, 3 and 5 and 7 and 11 and 12 and 13 or 14 and somewhere. Then we come to this important passage of scripture. I want you to go to Genesis 22. And we're going to look at it a little more. Let's see. Here comes the crowning test of Abraham. This is the graduation exam of Abraham. This is where Abraham is going to pass or fail. This is where he's going to get his thing. This is the end of the process to attain mature living faith. Friends, I, uh, let me tell you, you'll read Genesis 22 different before you have children and after you have children. So in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, now it came about after these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. Friends, look at verse 2. He says, take your son. Take your only son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. In case you do not know whom I'm talking about, his name is Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. Oh, friends, it was a strange request. It was a shocking request. 
Isn't Isaac the son of promise? Isn't Isaac the son of destiny? Isn't a nation to be born through Isaac? Oh, Abraham is asking, why is God asking this of me? My friends, I want you to know, Abraham has now learned the lessons of faith. He has now learned and is ready to graduate because what does Abraham do? He displays total obedience. He obeyed God completely and he obeyed instantly. He did not ask God, give me some time to think. Let me think about this. I'll come back to you. What does Abraham do the very next morning? The very next morning. I don't think he told Sarah what the plan was. If he had told Sarah, there would have been a civil war in the tent. I think Abraham must have come with this line. They're going to have a father-son worship experience. You know, what godly mother or wife wouldn't want the father to model how to worship and live for God. So the next morning, Abraham takes two servants, the donkeys, the wood, the fire, the knife, and Isaac, and make their way for three days they journeyed they come to the foothills of Mount Moriah. They stopped. And now Abraham gives a revised plan for the rest of the journey. He tells the servants, you stay here. He, then he says, we're going to go up. Oh, friends, look at verse 5. Listen to what he says to the, to the, two, uh, to the, uh, to the young men. Abraham said to, young, to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I, I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. Remember, notice what he said. We will go, we will worship, and we will return. Was Abraham fantasizing? Was Abraham deceiving the two servants with this statement? Friends, no. This is mature living faith. He is telling that he has learned how to trust God. And this shows the certainty of Abraham's faith in the living God. Let me give you a working definition of what living faith is. A living faith is this. Not fully knowing everything, but fully believing in the God who tells you to do something. Not fully knowing everything, but fully believing the God who tells you to do something. Friends, this is not blind faith. This is not empty faith. This is living faith, which grows deeper and deeper in God as we learn to obey Him. And we obey Him because, not because we know everything about what He tells us to do.
but we know the one who tells us to do something. Oh, friends, so, the, so why did he say? Why did Abraham say, we will go, we will worship, and we will return? Nowhere in Genesis gives us the insight. But the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews verse, nine, uh, verse 19 gives us the explanation why Abraham believed in this living faith, had this living faith in God. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So what did Abraham believe? Honestly, friends, I really believe Abraham at this point believed that he was going to go through with the killing of his son for sacrifice. But he believed that God will raise him from the dead. Why did Abraham believe that? Simple. If you can believe that God can create life from a barren womb, he can definitely give life back to a person who already had life. That's why he said, we will go, we will worship, and we will return. Return. So Abraham and Isaac began their journey up the mountain. They were slowly climbing up, uh, enjoying the beautiful scenery. Here, then we have the second time where there is the evidence of mature living faith. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Friends, there's a legitimate question. But it's an awkward question. It's a painful question to, uh, to, 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 uh, to Abraham. Uh, friends, I can understand. I can understand what he's talking about in some extent. You know, kids ask honest questions. You know, uh, for many years, as our kids were traveling, uh, uh, kids were growing up, I traveled 65 to 70% of the time. So most of the year, I was gone and, uh, for three weeks and two weeks and nine days and four days. And, uh, but, so I decided during the uh, growing up years, I'm going to spend a good part of the summer just in North America. All my ministries were contained within the continent of North America. So one or two days after the school closes, uh, we would load up into our Dodge Grand Caravan uh, van, and we will head up, and we will travel five to six weeks throughout the U.S. and Canada. Some ministries, some um, uh, tourism, uh, 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 tourist places, and some ministries all over. And our kids, we did that for 14 years of uh, their growing up years. And I want to tell you, we saw a good part. Our kids have grown, uh, seen a good part of North America because of that. On the road, uh, on the road, on the highways of North America. Uh, friends, on one occasion, we were going to go west from the central part of Canada through the Canadian Rockies. The Canadian Rockies are, are very attractive, uh, one of the most attractive things in North America people come to see, the Canadian Rockies. So I have always wanted to buy a good pair of binoculars. Uh, the ones I used to buy were cheap and you could see very little well. So I was down in Houston there was a good deal walking through the mall, 60% discount, 
And it is a German binoculars. How can you go wrong? I bought this powerful binoculars, first good binoculars. I brought it back and said, you know, this was in February. I said, when school closes, we are going to drive to the Rockies. I bought this binoculars, expensive binoculars. I let them all see, see, play, and then I said, now no playing with this. I'm going to keep it safe. And I did keep it safe. I put it on the upper shelf of of, the, of our display cupboard, and we left it there. So we start our journey, seven hours on Highway 1, going in the right direction, and one of my kids says, hey, Papa, where's the binoculars? <laughs> Just like any decent man, he turns around to his wife and says, where's the binoculars? <laughs> He said, you, you kept it. You kept it safe. I forgot where I kept it. And I'm thinking, I'm driving, I'm upset. And I'm, saying, I'm thinking about the suitcases we packed. We trying to think, where's the binoculars? Finally, maybe he's still at home. When I think about it, oh, yes, it is up on the shelf collecting dust. Oh, I turn around to the kids and say, guess what? God has given you good eyes. <laughs> See the natural beauty with your natural eyes. <laughs> That's what he did. Papa, where is the land? Oh, friends, Abraham expresses his mature living faith what did I say what living faith is? Not fully knowing everything, but believing in the God who tells you to do what he tells you. This is what he says in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together, not fully knowing everything, but fully believing in God who is sovereign and in control. He says, God will provide. Let me quickly give you a corrective. There is a lot of misunderstanding of the phrase, God will provide. There's extra biblical territory people go to because the word, the phrase, God will provide, is misunderstood and it has become a disappointment for many Christians. Let me unpack this phrase for you in the Hebrew. The word God will provide has three dimensions. Number one, God actually sees and understands your need. Secondly, God acts in our best interest. Thirdly, God provides according to his will and according to your need. The problem is, Many times we want God to provide according to our need. We do not bring the equation of God's will in the matter. Friends, Jehovah Jireh means God will see and understand your situation. God acts in your best interest, but God will only provide 
according to his will and according to your needs. God's promise is need-specific and personalized as long as it is his will. Finally, Abraham ends his journey on Mount Moriah. What does he do? He prepares the altar, arranges the wood, binds his son Isaac, lays him on the altar, reaches out for his knife. That is when God intervenes. Look at verse 12 of Genesis 22. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. God intervenes. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Friends, the test is over. God provides for himself a ram for sacrifice. God was not going to allow any human to be sacrificed for him because he had the only person to be sacrificed is his own son, Jesus Christ, uh, centuries later. Oh, he just wanted to know, would Abraham, a human, sinful, yet would he give up his son for him. And so, friends, here is a holy God sending a holy son to us to die for us. Abraham proved his mature living faith by total obedience, complete obedience plus instant obedience. Friends, total obedience always spells blessing from God. And that's what we, we see in the last verses of Genesis 22 Verses 15 to 18. Let me read this again. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. What is this one thing? Because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And then he goes on and says, Indeed, I'll greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth, all the people groups of the earth, all the tribes of the earth, all the ethnic groups of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you Obey my voice. To remain in the school of faith is to learn how to bring two elements together. Complete obedience and instant obedience closer and closer and closer to each other. God wants to help us. God wants to help each one of us. But God wants us to be willing to cooperate with him. To say, help me God. I want to obey. I want to obey completely. And I want to obey instantly. And, and the more you, those two things come together faster, you're maturing in your Christian faith. And God is always pleased with that progress. Because God's desire is every believer is to be a spiritual giant for God. Shall we pray?
as, as I close this morning, uh, maybe there are individuals who want to personally, privately say to God, Lord, keep me enrolled in the school of faith, but keep me progressing. Teach me total obedience, complete and instant together. Help me, Lord. Help me. If you're making that prayer, I want you to just slip up your hand and drop it right where you are. You're just making prayer to God right where you are. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. This is between you and God. It's not between you and me. It's between you and God. Anyone else before I close in prayer? If God has spoken, that's the best time to respond. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we are grateful that you are patient with us. We are grateful you want us to live the Christian life not by ourselves, but leaning on you, learning from you. And thank you that you have given us example of example, example after example in Scripture of individuals who learned to walk by faith. And we are grateful that even Abraham faltered and failed, but you kept at him. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us, and we pray, especially those this morning who have responded because you spoke to them specifically. Help them in their walk with you in the school of faith. Thank you that you're gracious, compassionate toward us, and you, you are willing to coach us along and help the body of Christ, the community of Christ, encouraging us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.